church. Morning. <laughs> if I haven't met you, my name is Jessica. I'm also one of the ministers here on staff. And uh, we are in a series in the book of Mark entitled The Story and Way of Jesus. And last week, Joey Chen came and just brought a wonderful, beautiful word to our church. But he gave us this really cool framework and lens to help us relate to Jesus as we're reading through the book of Mark. He reminded us that Jesus wants us to remember that it's not necessarily about the things of Jesus's ministry, like miracles and healings and feedings and walking on water. And yes, while those are very powerful benchmarks and things that were true of his ministry, what's really behind that is the meaning behind the things. And this meaning is to point us to Jesus and the kingdom of God, Jesus's kingdom of God. So in today's reading, I don't want us to miss the point what Jesus is confronting. Mark's words are concise and full of brevity and they really pack a punch. This is why I love Mark. <laughs> um, and I want us to understand that what the book of Mark is not meaning. So meaning, it's not meaning that it's about rules or regulations or rituals for us that are required to be with God. This is the imperative sense. But what Mark is actually written in is the indicative meaning it's a passage that reveals more about the overall picture of Jesus's vision, his life, and the character of Jesus. And this is the type of character that we as Jesus followers and the disciples can cultivate in our lives. So just a little forewarning, today's text might not have the grandeur of miracles or the fascination of healings or the awe of walking on water, but I promise you this is God's powerful message for us. I believe that he has something for us to pay attention to. And maybe when we're listening to this or as we're reading today, I want us to pay attention to the ache that might come up. It might start really subtly, um, but I want us to notice like what's happening in our body and our mind and kind of see, asking God, what, what will you have for us during this time? So let's uh, start. Let's turn our Bibles to Mark 7, verse 1. It says... The Pharisees and some of the teachers of the law who had come from Jerusalem gathered around Jesus and saw some of his disciples eating food with hands that were defiled, that is, unwashed. The Pharisees and all the Jews do not eat unless they give their hands a ceremonial washing, holding to the tradition of the elders. When they come from the marketplace, they do not eat unless they wash, and they observe many other traditions such as the washing of cups, pitchers, and kettles. So the Pharisees and teachers of the law asked Jesus, why don't your disciples live according to the tradition of the elders instead of eating their food with defiled hands? He replied, Isaiah was right when he prophesied about you hypocrites, as it is written, these people honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. They worship me in vain. Their teachings are merely human rules. You have let go of the commands of God and are holding on to human traditions. And he continued, you have a fine way of setting aside the commands of God in order to observe your own traditions. For Moses said, honor your father and mother, and anyone who curses their father or mother is to be put to death. But you say that if anyone declares that what might have been used to help their father or mother is Corban, that is devoted to God, then you no longer let them do anything for their father or mother. Thus you nullify the word of God by your tradition that you have handed down, and you do many things like that. Again, Jesus called the crowd to him and said, listen to me, everyone, and understand this. Nothing outside a person can defile them by going into them. Rather, it is what comes out of a person that defiles them. 
After he had left the crowd and entered the house, his disciples asked him about this parable. Are you so dull, he asked. Don't you, go see, don't you see that nothing that enters a person from the outside can defile them? For it doesn't go into their heart, but into their stomach and then out of the body. In saying this, Jesus declared all foods clean. He went on, what comes out of a person is what defiles them, for it is from within, out of a person's heart, that evil thoughts come. Sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, greed, malice, deceit, lewdness, envy, slander, arrogance, and folly. All these evils come from inside and defile a person. Let's pray. <laughs> Jesus, thank you for being with us today. Would you guide us as we are open and want to learn more about you, especially in this particular text? God, would you allow us to meet the person of Jesus and recognize what the kingdom of heaven, what your kingdom of heaven looks like? God, would we be enabled to experience you in a powerful way? God, would you be with us? Have your way with our time. Amen. So if we think about traditions, there's many traditions, and I think of some that I wanna share with you, but some of them are the most powerful, beautiful means of significance in my life. These are beautiful symbols that can give us meaning and actually help create beauty and order in our lives. I think of this first story, I think of my friend Rachel, she's a labor and delivery nurse here in San Francisco, and she has some wild stories. What is like delivering babies, especially with the demographic in SF, and often I picture her sometimes just like on this crazy, like, wing of the hospital and babies are being born and she's like catching them left and right because often her stories are a lot like that. <laughs> but she's able to share some really beautiful traditions that she gets to witness in the birthing room. There's one in particular in Muslim cultures that the entire room is silent when the baby is born. Nurses and doctors, it's complete silence. And the only thing that you can hear is the cry of a little baby. And then... It's customary for the father to be the first one to whisper blessings over the, father, over the child. And it's the first thing that this baby hears. It's beautiful. There's another tradition that's very powerful. Um, for me, it's in the Korean culture. It's called Tol or Toldanshi, which is the celebration of our one-year birthday. And it's often like American culture. We can see this pictured here. This is our friend Emmy. She's actually here in our community as well, one of my friend's daughters. This is her celebrating her first birthday last year. And as you can see, it looks very different than American one-year-old birthdays. <laughs> and there is a lot of beautiful significance and symbolism in some of these celebrations. You can see that she has traditional dress. There's food that means something. There's also a ceremony that you can see on the right where uh, parents lay out objects so that the child is given freedom to pick one of those objects. And it actually signifies what they might become in their profession or their lifestyle. <laughs> so this is a wonderful celebration that it's also you know, a time of celebration not only for the parents but for the community as well. And so see, here, traditions in these stories in and of themselves are not all that bad. But like the stories I shared, what if that one first beautiful moving story was actually ended up shifting the focus instead of celebrating the beautiful life and the whispers of a father, it was more about what kind of blanket do I have? 
What kind of uh, temperature is the room gonna be? Are the nurses and doctors gonna be quiet? What about other family? What, is, what about my hair and makeup? Is it gonna be fine for photos of this moment? Like, we can shift from the focus of that. Also, with Emmys like Dolce & if we celebrate this, often, maybe you guys' parents can relate to this, the first year celebration, what if it was more about who am I gonna invite, what food am I gonna have? I think of, should I have a petting zoo? Should I not have a petting zoo? Should I go to the park? Should I not go to the park? It's we can slowly shift our focus from the purpose of actually celebrating with community a milestone. So traditions can easily get swayed. But see, church, this is what Jesus was pointing out to the Pharisees in our passage as well. It's the Pharisees, like us sometimes, get subtly deceived without even knowing it. And Jesus is risking his life to tell the truth and display the character and true nature of God. As we refer back, starting in verse one, let's take a deeper look about how the Pharisees were subtly deceived. The Pharisees observed the disciples breaking Jewish laws from not participating in ceremonial washings and not upholding Jewish traditions. They approach Jesus in verse five and we see them ask, so the Pharisees and teachers of the law asked Jesus, Why don't your disciples live according to the tradition of the elders instead of eating their food with defiled hands? At first glance, you might think, man, these Pharisees are like the ultimate tattletales. Nobody likes a tattletale. (laughs) But they weren't. And I really want us to understand the point and purpose of the Pharisees. Now, I'm not gonna go on a deep dive of like rabbinic law because that will not add anything. People will tune out. But... I want to simplify it for us to understand the purpose of the Pharisees' job and role. The intention was good. See, the law, the Jewish law, refers to 613 laws of how to achieve God's level of holiness. The intent was so good. And there are all kinds of laws. There's moral laws, tradition, cleanliness laws, and some of these laws were established to either participate in to become more holy and righteous or to refrain from something to become holy and righteous and pure. These are not bad. This uh, passage particularly refers to things that are from Jewish law, like the ceremonial washings, traditions, and rituals as the law stated. And the Pharisees' intention was to keep things clean and holy and righteous by upholding the law. So their job had great intentions. And often they would keep track of how the laws were kept. This is a subtle danger here. There's a subtle danger here, and it has to do with the Pharisees' posture and approach to Jesus in this passage. The Pharisees were able to recite the law and oral tradition with expertise and authority. And they thought they knew it all. And they thought they had figured it out. And then they thought that they had Jesus pegged by suggesting that he broke the law. This posture is subtly dangerous too. See, they were more concerned about knowing the law, reciting it, and keeping it, rather than the actual acts and intent of the acts themselves. This is why it's so subtle we have to pay attention to. However, in this passage, we continue to see that Jesus directly reinforces that the Pharisees are not only foolish in pointing out broken laws, but they actually have gravely missed the point and have ended up drifting far from God's vision. Immediately, I thought of the story of my family dog growing up. Her name was Cookie, and Cookie had a big weakness, and it was squirrels. So she would just chase after these things like 
going crazy. I think instinct just jumped in and she would just get so hyper, she couldn't pay attention to anything. So she's in the yard, like jumping all around, going back and forth. And often people observing would be able to see the squirrels taunting her from the stage, or from the stage, from the fence, you know? And so at times we just like point to the squirrel and be like, oh my gosh, there it is. Like we're talking to our dog like it's a human. But we're like, look, there it is. Don't you see it? And she would be so flustered that she would actually be only looking at my pointing finger rather than the yard full of squirrels. I feel like just like my dog, the Pharisees are like that. They're more concerned about something right in front of them instead of the larger vision of what's happening and playing outside of that. They were missing the point. They were subtly deceived about the wrong thing. But we see that Jesus wants to confront this point of misunderstanding. He continues on in verse six. He replied, Isaiah was right when he prophesied about you hypocrites. As it is written, these people honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. They worship me in vain. Their teachings are merely human rules. You have let go of the commands of God and are holding on to human traditions. And he continued, you have a fine way of setting aside the commands of God in order to observe your own traditions. And Jesus even names them as hypocrites. The Pharisees are subtly deceived because they are confusing the laws for reality and what is actually happening. Verse six is referring to Isaiah 29, 13, which says, the Lord says, these people come near to me with their mouth and honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. They are being called hypocrites because they are imposing the wrong things with such a blind vigor that they are missing the true message. So subtle and so dangerous. You know, this reminded and sparked a memory about a tradition that I've heard about called the red plate story. I first heard about this from my housemate, Laura, and as I shared more and more with our community, more and more people I found out celebrated this tradition growing up. It's centered around this red plate, which you'll see on the slide. Nothing special, it's red, and it says, you are special today. (laughs) But often, this would signify some milestone in families that they experienced or celebrated. So for example, Laura's one was, I jumped off the high dive today when I was a kid, so I got to eat off this red plate as a child. Some of them were celebrating milestones in families, like I retired, or it was my birthday, or I have a guest over and you're my guest of honor. You get this very special red plate. Man, little things can bring such joy. However, this got tricky when I started hearing stories about families with multiple kids or people in them. And it turned into be more of a competition than it was to signify a milestone. (laughs) For example, someone once told me their family got so mad and competitive that people would just end up crying at dinner because it wasn't fair, or they demonized the person who was the judge, usually the parents, that they were being unfair about who got the plate and who didn't. And even one person admitted that they hid the red plate as a kid, so no one could get the plate. (laughs) So, very much missing the point. But family members, you know, usually small kids, also sometimes I would hear these stories where they did normal, usual things. Like, I emptied the dishwasher, so I deserve this red plate. (laughs) That is not the point of this (laughs) this tradition. But see, it cheapened the purpose of the plate. I mean, it's like saying to us, well, I woke up today and I'm breathing, so we all get a red plate, which maybe sometimes that might be true. Like, we deserve that. 
but it does, it misconstrues the purpose of the tradition. You know, it's like the stories I shared at the very beginning. It's about powerful traditions. And Jesus is telling them again that it's not that all traditions are bad and should be eliminated. However, he is saying that there is a deception in traditionalism that we need to be aware of. Jaroslav Pelikan, an American theologian and scholar, had a great definition of what traditionalism is. He quotes, tradition is the living faith of the dead, and traditionalism is the dead faith to the living. Do we see and notice how subtle the differences are here? See, traditions might become misguided when they run counter to God's purposes. We are deceived when our sight and understanding are missing the point. The problem lies because we are too focused on the details and missing the grand design. I thought of this when I was huffing up a hill on California. If you've ever walked up the hill to Grace Cathedral at the top, you're kind of like, why do I live here? And why am I walking here anymore? But it was a beautiful sunny day and I was looking at Grace Cathedral and the beautiful stained glass window. But it's like us looking at that window on a sunny day and only looking at it from the outside. We actually don't discover its beauty and true design until we go inside and look at it. This is like the Pharisees, they're missing the point. And friends, Jesus does not want this for us. Jesus continues to confront how we can subtly be deceived when we start believing that what we're doing on the outside defiles or contaminates the inside. In verse 14, it says again, Jesus called the crowd to him and said, listen to me, everyone, and understand this. Nothing outside a person can defile them by going into them. Rather, it is what comes out of a person that defiles them. After he had left the crowd and entered the house, his disciples asked him about this parable. Are you so dull, he asked. Don't you see that nothing that enters a person from the outside can defile them? For it doesn't go into their heart, but into their stomach, and then out of the body. In saying this, Jesus declared all foods clean. I always giggle because I think, isn't this sad for our vegan friends? But honestly, <laughs> I was like, I have lots of vegan friends. But I just automatically think about that. But I want us to know that it's more about kosher and keeping foods pure and holy. In verse 18, Jesus applies this concept of Pharisaical law of keeping vessels clean to actually humans and food. He redefines this by saying, it doesn't matter what food enters your mouth. No matter how holy or how important or Whole30 or keto or some other magical food that we think is powerful, it's gonna all end up in the same place. Remember, no amount of good intentions is going to be the thing that saves you or makes you holy. This is really important to stress. It all ends up in the same place. He goes on to say your stomach and then we'll use our imagination where it ends up but he's giving us context and meaning where true defilement comes from. See, Jesus doesn't want the Pharisees to be deceived and he reiterates his meaning, it's not about food. And he tells them it's truly about something more. In verse 20, he went on, what comes out of a person is what defiles them, for it is from within, out of a person's heart, that evil comes from. Sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, greed, malice, deceit, lewdness, envy, slander, arrogance, and folly. 
All these evils come from the inside and defile a person. See, Jesus is telling the Pharisees here that there is nothing that you take in and nothing that you actually bring in from the outside into your body that can cleanse you. See, the true problem lies already on the inside of the things that he listed. See, he's pointing out that the Pharisees are sick from the inside out. And they are being deceived because no amount of religiosity or ritual can cleanse them. In Matthew 23, 25, it says, woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites. You clean the outside of the cup and dish, but the inside they are full of greed and self-indulgence. See, it is here that Jesus is saying, let me tell you actually where true evil lies, and it exists within our hearts. But here is where we have hope, and Jesus is making his main point. He's saying, we need a new heart. So if Jesus is saying that we are like the Pharisees, we can't make our hearts new by any religion or ritual or tradition or thing that we do. We can't cleanse ourselves, and we can't even give ourselves a new heart as much as we want to. We actually have to receive a new heart, and that's a gift of grace. See, grace comes from the outside in, and with this renewed heart, it's given to us as a gift from Jesus. The answer here is to no longer be deceived by receiving this renewed heart from Jesus. However, we must cultivate and care for this renewed heart. And one of the ways that we can do that to care for the thing that Jesus gave to us is to cultivate a purity of heart. In our passage, we see that Jesus is showing us what not to do, like the Pharisees. And I wanna share a personal story about when I first hear purity of heart, what do I mean? What do I want you to experience about this? And I wanna share a story about something that happened with my family that we often think about as we think when we approach God. See, my parents taught me everything I know about generosity. There's often times that they would uh, support missionaries all over the world, and in particular, there was this family that had this little girl that uh, was part of their family, and at one time, the mom and dad were writing thank you notes to us and all their supporters for th uh, thanking us, and the little girl really wanted to join in. And she's like, mom, I really wanna write or do whatever you're doing, and what can I do? So she gives her a piece of paper and is like, great, let's think about what you're thankful for. Is there anything that you're thankful for? So she sits there for a while and is thinking, and she's like, I don't really know. Nothing's coming to mind. So her parents were like, well, that's fine. Just keep doing whatever. Draw something. We're going to put it in with um, these letters to my parents. So they wrapped it up and sent it off, and my parents received this note in the mail. And it said, thank you. <laughs> thank you for nothing. <laughs> In Matthew 5, it says, blessed are the pure at heart, for they will see God. This is truly what I think about when we are to approach God. And we, oh man, it's so great. I think about, what does that even mean? But I can think of this story and think, gosh, I'm not really thankful for anything. So I can still say thank you for nothing. And it's meaningful. Uh, <laughs> 
But you know what? This is an invitation for all of us to experience life with God in this sense, this purity of heart. I also just want to plug that, man, we have an opportunity to be with our families, have been friend, children, to serve in the village. We have a front row seat because I promise you that when you spend time with them, they're going to act and show you what it means to be close to God, to have pure hearts. So there is an invitation for us in that. But Soren Kierkegaard has a simple and profound way of defining what purity of heart is. And he says, purity of heart is to will one thing. So we might be thinking, how do we respond if we're to will one thing? And I say, we're to will one thing, and that's Jesus. And we're to choose one thing, and that's Jesus. Now, this state of care for our renewed hearts that we've received is not like the laws or rituals that the Pharisees were obsessed with, that they had the best intentions, but they were deceived. See, Jesus pointed out that they could never earn or obtain renewed hearts on their own. Remember, this is a gift from Jesus. And maybe you're thinking right now, when I think, say, purity of heart, we're thinking of some really bad, for me, it's really bad middle school purity culture theology. I think of my middle school memories where I was like, man, that's not at all the heart of God. And I really wanna encourage us to pay attention to that ache, but then to allow God to really come into that and join you in what does he mean by purity of heart in this instance. And I don't want us to miss the forest for the trees of what Jesus is defining for us. See, we must pay attention and not drift back to being like the Pharisees, where we're participating in activities or rituals, or religiosity, and be deceived by missing the point. See, we need to keep caring for and cultivating our renewed hearts. We have to be intentional about how we care for them as well. And I wanna share four things that I wanna encourage you to keep in mind as we steward these gifts of a renewed heart together. The first one is to follow the ache to encounter God. Maybe you're not sure what a renewed heart looks like or what it feels like, but that little ache, I was like, I promise you God will meet you there. I have faith that he'll meet you there. See, where we set our focus, it determines our life and our hearts. In Jeremiah 29, 13, it says, you will seek me and find me when you seek me with all of your heart. And we don't earn new hearts or purity. We are given them graciously. We continue to care for our hearts by number two, partnering with God. See, purity is not about performance or perfection. It's a gift of love. And Proverbs 4.23 says, above all else, guard your heart for everything you do flows from it. We must also flee from sin. I think of Paul's words as a reminder to flee from sin. You know, Jesus isn't saying you can go like over here to this line, but don't cross over here and you can live somewhere in the middle. No, he's saying flee. He's saying run. And when we think about running, I don't necessarily think about running away. I want us to reframe it to what we're running to, and that's to will the one thing, Jesus. We must ruthlessly cut things out of our lives that are sinful. And we remember that when things are hidden, it's very dangerous. We can also be subtly deceived at this as well. But purity is powerful. There's power in it when we are with God, with our hearts. We are intentional about the care of our hearts when we, number three, embrace confession. Overcoming sin and pursuing purity of heart are when we are honestly and frequently before God and others in community. 
You know, I also wanna make a point that we don't disregard or ignore exterior things. Those do matter, but it's with a purity of heart that we have to realign or align them correctly as a response to what is happening with Jesus internally and within our hearts. See, concealing sin will destroy our heart and the spirit, but confession brings freedom. God's compassion leads us to confession. And we continue to practice purity of hearts when we for deepen community. It's with confession and in the presence of others that we have community with God. We're allowed community of God as such a gift. We receive forgiveness and together in community is how we are able to actually receive healing. What a gift it is to be with one another, to do that for one another. See, we need a community to help us gauge this. We might be thinking, who do we have in our life to mirror this with? You know, my friend Ashley, who's a fellow pastor, often shares with me that she gets often asked to, be ment- like, to mentor people. And she says, I do this, but if I want to pursue purity of heart, I ask them to bring their bank statements and their calendar because I want them to know if they're serious about pursuing this. We can ask, how many of us are willing to do this for other people? And what might we stand for as we're cultivating this purity of heart? See, church, Jesus wants us to experience him. Jesus is after our hearts, and he wants us to receive these renewed hearts. The question is also, will you let him gift it to us? Are we open to that? See, God wants us to encounter the goodness of God and his Holy Spirit. Where purity of heart is, that is where his kingdom of God lies. We set our sights on more of him so we can live in freedom with fervor and single intentionality. He wants us to care for our new hearts with purity because it's fierce and potent and powerful. And he wants to see his kingdom come as we join him. Let's pray. Actually, would you stand with me as we pray? And if you'd like, you can extend your hands open to a posture of being open with God or just get comfortable and you can close your eyes if that helps you concentrate some more. Let's just be with God. Jesus, we desire to know that our hearts matter to you. They do. (laughs) And Jesus, we gain access to the holy with you with freedom. Thank you for this. Thank you that we no longer need rituals or traditions to be with you and your holiness bursts all bounds. Would you continue to draw near to us as we cultivate our lives and hearts with purity? Amen.